Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'll never forget a morning I went into the coronary care unit. It was a Sunday morning and I looked around at the mail bay and I thought, gosh, they're quite young today and I talked to them and they didn't really have many risk factors but the key thing that they spoke about was having this period of stress that then led to this central crushing chest yeah. pain that brought them in um, and it, it it's so important now for us as a society really to think about how we can how we can tackle this Welcome to the Doctor's Kitchen podcast with me, Dr. Rupi, where we discuss the most important topics and concepts in the medicinal qualities of food and lifestyle. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Zorin Morgan, who is a consultant cardiologist specialized in cardiac imaging, specifically advanced echocardiography and cardiac MRI, following her PhD in sleep at Imperial College London and the Royal Brompton Hospital. We'll be talking about her exciting new project called Fresh Hearts, where she's committed to tackling the root causes of cardiac disease, which aims to empower people to lead longer, healthier, happier lives. We'll be talking about her personal experience of lifestyle medicine, the cardiologist from America who inspired her journey, and a particular focus on things like atrial fibrillation and preventative cardiology, what that actually means. Make sure you listen to the end of the podcast where I'll be summarizing what we talked about and how you can get involved with her new project, the Fresh Hearts Project. I honestly think it's going to be game-changing for the NHS, and I cannot wait to send people her way who want to look after their hearts more effectively using lifestyle alongside medicines like i always say there is a lot of evidence-based safe dietary and lifestyle change that we as practitioners can be confidently discussing with our patients and that's what we're going to be chatting about today so make sure you listen right to the end check out dr zoreen morgan and her website i'm going to put i'm going to put all her socials on my podcast show notes in the first part of this podcast with Dr. Zorian, I made her some chai spiced overnight oats with dried pears, some berries and some quality fats. If you want to see the recipe, then check it out on YouTube at thedoctorskitchen.com. And you can also see it on my podcast show notes at thedoctorskitchen.com too. On to the podcast. So, Dr. Zarin. 
I'm going to call you Zarin. Call me Zareen. Yeah, Zareen. Okay, <laughs> Zareen. I just, it's just the way I always pronounce people's names. No, like, I, I do it very phonetically. Yeah, like, okay. it's, it, it's the way I blame my parents. <laughs> I know Zareen because I've got a friend called Zareen and it's Z-O-R-E-E-N. It should really have a double E in it. Oh, okay, yeah. fine. Okay, fine. Yeah. Zareen. I almost changed it by Depol once. Oh, really? People kept calling me Zarin. <laughs> <laughs> That's like, like me. Yeah. Like a, a baddie in the Bond movie. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're just sat there with your with your white cat. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Zareen, yeah. Exactly. Okay, Zareen. Um, we're going to be cooking. We're not going to be cooking actually. We're going to be prepping something. Very very simple. It's overnight oats um, with a chia spice mix. Um, some chia seeds. Um, some chai. Sorry, chai chai spice mix. Some chia seeds. Uh, I've already got one prepped from last night, so Wonderful. don't worry, you're not going to have to wait 12 hours for it. <laughs> um, and it's going to be chocolate and dry pears. Um, these are kind of unusual, I don't know if oh, you've wow. seen these before, but these are basically uh, halved dried pears. Um, really, really, really good sources of sort of fibre, but they're very, very sweet as well. So it gives that nice sweetness without having to use, you know, coconut sugar or honey or whatever. Love um, it. And I just thought, as you're a working cardiologist and you know what it's like to be as a training cardiologist as well. Um, busy. You're busy and <laughs> you need to have breakfast sorted. So yeah, yeah I thought I'd do that for you. Perfect. Sound good? Sounds very exciting. Great. Okay. And I've, and I've got this trusty scale as well because like we were saying, I'm really bad at like, you know, measuring things out. So yeah. I'm going to put everything there. Sorry. Tell us about tell us about yourself, because uh, I mean the first time we met was um, uh, after a talk I was or a panel I was on or something, yes. and you came up after me afterwards, yes. and you were like, you know, I'm a, a consultant cardiologist, and I've had a couple of patients that have read your books, and I, you know, it's been pivotal for them and stuff, and I thought that was so touching for me to hear, but particularly as you're a consultant cardiologist as well, um, which I massively respect, obviously. So, tell me, tell us a little bit, a bit about yourself. Um, and what you're up to now and, and how you got here as well. Yeah, so I, I've had quite an interesting journey, I guess. Mm -hmm. I qualified in 2001, uh -huh. long, long time ago. Yeah. Um, Not that long, come on. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I had a really varied career in medicine. I did loads of things, travelled to loads of different hospitals around the UK, and I think I had a really good foundation in general medicine. Uh -huh. And then... In about 2005, I decided, actually, I really like cardiology. This yeah. is what I want to do. Yeah. And then got into cardiology training. Uh -huh. Loved it for a very long time. Yeah. And uh, then had the opportunity to uh, go to the Royal Brompton Hospital and uh -huh. do a PhD, which involved sleep. Yeah. So that is where... Round the corner from here. Round the corner from yeah, here. Yeah. That's where my interest in sleep and the role of sleep in cardiac health uh -huh. first came to, came to be. Yeah. And... Um, and then after that, I got a training program up in the Mersey Deanery. Uh -huh. So I went up north and yeah. completed my cardiology training in Liverpool. Uh -huh. And so qualified in, in life for a while. Yeah, yeah. 2017, I qualified. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I guess my journey's been uh, quite varied. Mm -hmm. um, and I've had lots of different experiences. And really, what I've come to the conclusion of is that. Over the years, I've seen so many patients and what I'm noticing now is that they're really getting younger and they're getting sicker. Yeah. Um, and there are lots of different reasons. There are lots of different causes. But I 
honestly believe that one of the main factors is that we have a busy, stressful yeah. life, that our modern life lends itself to poor mm. eating habits, poor sleeping habits, stress, mm. um, not as much physical activity as we should. Uh. And then that um, translates into cardiovascular disease. Mm. And sadly, what I'm just, you know, seeing in, in the wards at a younger and younger age. And so I started um, really reflecting on how I practice medicine and my training is in imaging and I do a lot of cardiac imaging, mainly ultrasound and cardiac MRI, but now I'm putting a real focus on prevention uh -huh, because uh -huh. I think that's where I can really have a bigger impact. Yeah, yeah. So tell us a bit more about your training. So mm. you talked about imaging and, and w what you're, you're generally doing, but um, ultrasonography is sort of the mainstay of what you were doing or was it... Both ultrasonography, which is echocardiography. Uh -huh. So for people who don't know what that is, that's um, effectively uh, ultrasound scanning. So it's what, what we use in pregnant ladies to look okay. at babies. But instead we use the same sort of probe and look through the chest wall um, at the heart. So we can look at the structure, the function, valves. Um, we can do various things. We can give medications to speed the heart rate up and we can see what happens when periods of stress. Mm -hmm. We can also um, do uh, ultrasound scans when people swallow the probes that take a slightly different approach. Yeah. So that, yes, all of those um, ultrasound modalities I do and cardiac MRI as mm -hmm. well. Mm -hmm. And I've had a bit of training in cardiac CT, mm -hmm. although I don't currently practice that at the moment. Okay, fine, yeah. So yeah. cardiac MRI, I, I had a cardiac MRI as well. Did because you? As you know, um, I had uh, yes. paratus mitral fibrillation and that's yeah. sort of you're saying that's how you found out about me, right? I did, like, yeah. <laughs> I did, I did, because, I mean, we'll probably talk a little bit about my journey, but I yeah. then, I, I was introduced to lifestyle medicine, did a bit of Googling, and I came up against, uh, I, okay, your podcast came up yeah. on my iTunes podcast suggestions, uh -huh. and I thought, oh, I'll, I'll have a listen to this, and I listened to the introduction where you talk about your journey and yeah. atrial fibrillation, yeah. so all of a sudden, all these things kind of... Um, really resonated with me as a cardiologist yeah. uh, with seeing you know hearing about a young person with atrial fibrillation yeah. of which i see a lot yeah, yeah and the fact that you know you went down a very traditional route which is obviously the route that we all go down and you kind of have to explore mm. um and that you managed to reverse it mm. and keep it at bay mm. with lifestyle measures yeah. i found it amazing i found it phenomenal so that is actually yes how I first found out about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, it's, a, it's a really interesting story because I think, you know, and I've chatted to a whole bunch of um, lifestyle medicine advocates, if you mm. like, or um, not that I think you need to be particularly novel or, or cavalier these days, for want of a better term, to practice and, and be a promoter of lifestyle medicine. But everyone seems to have their own personal story yes. when going into here. Yeah. And, uh, you, you know... Uh, personal stories can can be um, either yourselves or a family member or someone very close to you or even patients themselves or anecdotes and that kind of stuff. Um, do you have a personal story? Do you have something that like uh, changed in your life? Yeah, I mean, I, I do have a personal story and it's interesting that you, you mention that because I, I've noticed that too. I've yeah. noticed that whenever I speak to lifestyle medicine practitioners, mm. often they do share their story. Yeah. Um, and they share their story of, you know, going down a very conventional route, which obviously does work, but mm. for them it hasn't, and they've explored different options, and and, and it's really um, given them a new lease of life almost. Absolutely. And then that's inspired them, and that's a very similar story to me, actually. Yeah. 
Um, and you know, sorry, just to mm. say one thing. I, I don't think it's almost because of um, the fact that you've uh, shunned conventional medicine or you, you've chosen a pure alternative path. I think it's more so that you experience what it's like to be a patient. Yeah. And that changes your practice forever. You have this new sense of empathy, this new understanding of how embarrassing and powerless it can be to be a patient. And lonely. And lonely, yeah. absolutely, yeah. yeah. Sorry, you are about no, to No, that's that. absolutely fine. And I do want to emphasize that point. I think it's a really important point that we're not shunning conventional medicine. Mm. Conventional medicine's amazing. We've mm. made so much progress mm. with procedures, with medications, mm. and that's not what we're saying or promoting. Mm. But lifestyle changes always make a difference yeah. and it can be small or it can be large but it, it it's always worth exploring mm, absolutely yeah 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 so i guess my story my gosh I've, i think it started probably after i went back to work after having my son, who's now uh -huh. five years old. Uh -huh. um, prior to that, he's I was a skateboarder. A car, he's oh. a skateboarder. He <laughs> yeah. loves a skateboard, and it's a stunt scooter now. Yeah. 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 Um, so he, you know, prior to having my son, I was a cardiology registrar, and as you know, it's mm. very busy. Mm. Um, we do a lot of shift work. Yeah. There are a lot of exams, um, and it really wasn't a problem. You know, I had um, loads of energy and. I was dedicating a lot of that to my work and that was fine. Um, however, when I went back after maternity leave, I found that it, I struggled. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't think I realized that I was struggling. Yeah. I think there's a real mentality that you just get on with it and you cope. Oh, totally. Yeah, it's, that, I, it's that sort of yeah. alpha medic mentality Absolutely. of like, you know, you're, yeah. you know, you're not weak, you can get on with yeah. things. And, yeah. yeah, and I had before, you know, mm. I'd been at Medical Reg for five years. I'd, yeah. You know, I'd done a lot of things and I thought, yeah. you know what? just cope Serene this is fine mm. um, but I was struggling I was struggling really because the demands of the job are so high mm. plus you know I'm a mum I want to spend time with my, my son yeah. I want to yeah. be a good wife I want to there's so much expectation that you place yeah. on yourself so I slowly started to get what in retrospect now I'm I realize was symptoms of burnout mm. and I mean it started with you know poor sleep mm -hmm. it started with um, just you know stress I was really stressed a lot of the time and quite unhappy yeah. um, and then I think it was sort of the middle of 2016 when I was nearing the end of my training that I started getting symptoms sort of physical symptoms and yeah. um, and the physical symptoms are actually it's really interesting I haven't really talked about because um, but I do think it's important that I do mention them because mm. as you mentioned it's quite a lonely place it and is. I think that a lot of people, a lot of women go through the symptoms that I went through mm. and think that they're alone. And, they're, and that's certainly how I felt as well. So I started getting um, bleeding, mm -hmm. a PV bleeding mm -hmm. mid-cycle. Mm -hmm. So obviously, you know, you, you, you think what's, what's wrong. And I went to my GP and then I got ultrasounds. And I got, you know, they, they said, oh, you know, there's a polyp, it might be that. Um, and I, it didn't stop. So I just kept bleeding mm. um, and it started off as a little bit yeah. and then it progressed mm -hmm. to a bit more. Um, and then I thought, right, okay, I'm bleeding now a lot. For the majority of the month, I am now bleeding. So I think actually I should take up the offer of having this polyp removed and yeah. take it out. And they took it out and I think for about four or five days I didn't bleed yeah. and then it started again. Um, 
And then it got really bad. Um, and I, I still, I didn't talk about it. I was so ashamed. I was quite embarrassed, which is, sounds really stupid to me now. Um, and it got really bad to the point where I was, um, I had like this one, what was probably a hemorrhage, whilst trying to put a TOE probe down someone's, yeah, so a transesophageal uh, probe, yeah. pro, transesophageal echo is what yeah. I talked about earlier, is, is um, effectively a um, endoscopy, so it's like putting a probe into someone's mouth. And you know, I was quite good at this procedure, so my consultant was standing back looking at me going, why is she struggling? And I, at the same time as trying to put a probe down in, into someone's mouth, was like, oh my god, I'm yeah. having clots, I can feel the clots going down my leg. Yeah. So I just excused myself and um, ended up going into hospital yeah. and really um nothing much changed i was put on medication they thought um, maybe it's an infection maybe it's you know they couldn't find anything pathological per se um and then i just kept on bleeding and i kept on bleeding and it wasn't i didn't put two and two together i didn't think maybe it's because you know i've been but I'm burnt out. Maybe it's because I just thought there was something physical. Of course, yeah. I mean, who would yeah. at that point, yeah, right? As absolutely. a commentary trained medic, yeah, yeah. that's not something you consider. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then I thought, okay, I'm finishing my training in, in early 2017. I'm going to take a break. I don't think I'm ready to start a consultant job. And, you know, I thought about finances. I thought about various bits and pieces, but I thought, no, I'm going to take, I'm going to take a month off and then I'll reassess and I'll see what I want to do. Um, and I kept bleeding. At some point I thought, right, I'm gonna come off all my medications because it, it wasn't helping. I was yeah. still bleeding, I wasn't sleeping. And then- and I'm assuming you were on the, you know, the standard medications like yeah. methanamic acid and tranexamic yeah. acid and norethisterone. All of that, norethisterone, tranexamic acid, methanamic acid, mm -hmm. loads of iron tablets. Yeah, of course, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and then I, so I stopped them. Um, and, and I did st still keep on bleeding, but the really interesting thing for me was that the day I stopped bleeding, and no joke, the day I stopped bleeding was the day I finished my training and the day I was gonna have a month off. Wow. Yeah. And it really highlighted, and I haven't bled like that again. Oh, oh, and was that the light bulb moment And that was the eureka moment for me that I was really stressed. It yeah. was stress. I don't know what it was doing to my hormones. Mm. Um, it was a combination of that and the lack of sleep. I had a really poor diet, although we had started making some changes. And so that month off really allowed me to reflect on what was going on and do a bit of research, figure out how we were going to progress forward, sort of radically changed what we um, ate, changed how I coped with stress. I started doing mindfulness, yoga. I really did um, a lot of work on myself. and. You know, there's still a lot to do, yeah. um, and I, but I really feel like it was a warning sign for me and a wake-up call to realise that yeah. I was, I could, I, and I felt really empowered that, yes, I had this, but I was, I was in control, I could change it, I could manage it. And that's not always the case. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but yeah, it's funny. I've never, I've never really spoken about the bleeding. But I do, I did think it's important to speak about it because, yeah, it's a lonely place. And absolutely. if anyone else is going through it, then you're not alone. And it, it do find, do seek help. Um, but there are things that you can do as well. Yeah, I mean, first of all, I think it's super brave of you to talk about these things openly because, as I know, as a medic. 
you have this shield and you don't want to let anyone know about chinks in your armor no. and you don't ever want to demonstrate vulnerability i think we're getting better at it right now as a as a sort of profession um, and it's because of people like yourself speaking up and saying these sorts of things about and admitting to the fact that, yes, I am stressed and yes, I'm impatient, um, that we will get better eventually. Mm. But that, honestly, I, I commend you so much for, for being open and honest about it because it is something that we see mm. time and time again. It's something that I see as a general That's practitioner. As a general practitioner, yeah. I see it all the time. Mm. And that's not to suggest that, you know, we should be taking people off medication because they clearly have a role, as they Absolutely. did for you. You know, I still prescribe all these different medications. I still prescribe iron tablets. We still prescribe yeah. um, progesterone tablets when, yeah. when needed. But you know what? Trying to get to the root cause of, of issues and trying to tentatively figure out what it might be for that person. Mm. In your case, it sounds like it was a... Like a, 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 a catalyst of of, um, uh, of of different uh, features like poor sleep and stress and perhaps what you were eating as well and for different people it might be different things Absolutely. Um, and it's just about trying to fit. and that that's it's hard to do in medicine isn't it because mm. we're clear we're, we're thought this sort of like um, biological model of medicine where it's just we have one symptom or one condition and we have a treatment algorithm for that Absolutely. and we have to think a little bit wider yeah. about it yeah. um, but that that's such a powerful story and I think a lot of people will be resonating I hope so. I hope so. And I hope it makes people appreciate that they're not alone and yeah. that they're, they can they can get help and Absolutely. that it is something that we do need to talk about mm. and be more open about. Totally. Yeah. yeah. I'm, oh, so I'm an, I'm actually I'm, re- I'm, I'm doubly glad <laughs> that you're talking about this because I, I'm also ambassador for the Eva Pill, oh, um, which is a charity that aims to raise awareness of the five gynecological cancers. Um, so getting things like bleeding checked, mm. uh, changes and menses, all that kind of stuff, mm. um, uh, pain and pain having sex and, and uh, you, you know, so I think it's a taboo subject, mm. but we're trying to smash the shame around talking about it because um, a good friend of mine, Anita Mitra, she's another ambassador for the Eva Pill. She opens up her book uh, talking about a patient who uh, had been consistently bleeding for years before wow. she even saw anyone. And it's because of the embarrassment and yeah. the fact that, you know, we as medics also have the same yeah. embarrassment around yeah. the subject. Yeah. It speaks volumes, right? Yeah. It really does. I'm going to get back to this recipe real quick before I forget. So all I've done here is I've um, put in the chia, the chai spice mix, um, the oats, the uh, almond milk. um, Actually, no, this is coconut milk here. um, And uh, mixed it all together with a bit of cacao powder as well. Sounds very fancy. Chia is probably the most expensive mix, but really it's just a bit of cacao powder a bit of nut milk or whatever milk you want to use and some oats so you can really really strip it back to that oh and the dried pears to give the sweetness yeah. so through the magic of what i've made earlier <laughs> um this is one that's been uh, essentially soaking overnight um for about 12 hours now so that's got the same ingredients and we're just going to top it with whatever you want. So I know you like uh, some nuts. So we've got some sliced okay. almonds. Uh, we've got some some berries here and then um, smooth almond butter as well. We're not in school, so we can use nut yeah. butters and, that and all the stuff that we want here. Yeah. So, so yeah. So what, what is your sort of like uh, eating habits now? You said that you change your eating habits yeah. quite a bit. And yeah, what, what's yeah. it? What do, you, what do you tend to eat for breakfast? And yeah, stuff? we... And no I, shame here, by the way. Breakfast, yeah, no, <laughs> breakfast is often a difficult one. But yeah, yeah. I, I, my, both my husband and myself, we, we make a smoothie. Uh-huh. Yeah, nice. and just put loads of chia seeds, flax seeds, yeah, yeah. 
kale yeah. and then a whole load of fruit nice. we put some nut i think maybe we put a bit too much in <laughs> like, no. i mean I, i i am known to eat this from the jar to be honest like yeah. when i'm at work yeah yeah people often find me just like with a, a jar of nut butter yeah, yeah, and yeah. like some fruit yeah. <laughs> so i probably have too much as well but, but yeah. yeah it sets us up for the day yeah, yeah and totally. then what i realized was if I find it hard to eat healthily when I'm on the go. And so we for lunch, we generally, te- well, when we're organized, <laughs> we make a vat, a big vat of salad with quinoa, parsley, nuts, grated carrots, grated beetroot, yeah. Yeah. chili, garlic, loads of olive oil, loads uh-huh. of lemon, uh-huh. walnuts, pumpkin seeds, anything I've got in my cupboard yeah. that can keep, and it keeps. So we make a big vat of that, nice. shove it in the fridge. Yeah. And then have that for lunch. That's amazing. So it fills us up, yeah. yeah. And I found that that post-lunch dip has gone. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I used to be like reliant on the canteen sort of sandwiches and yeah. that kind of stuff in hospital, which they, well, we need to address that. But um, yeah, I used to have that slump and stuff. Yeah. And yeah, and then when I started eating a lot more fresh and a lot yeah. more sort of quality fats and that kind of stuff, I found immeasurable differences in my energy levels. Um, so yeah, try this, uh, give it a try, be honest. Um, so that's spiced uh, pear uh, with uh, overnight oats and chia, um, some berries and some nuts on top, super simple. Something I have pretty much all the time. In fact, I've got one waiting in the fridge for me. I want to get some of the pear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You definitely need some of the pear because otherwise without, there's no other sweetness in it at all. So you need to get some of that dried pear in it. So it kind of goes with the, mm. the spiciness and stuff, so. Nice. Mm. You do a very fake mmm there. No, <laughs> very good mmm, brother. <laughs> good. Well, hopefully you'll oh, be no, making this and, and maybe uh, maybe your five-year-old yeah. will, will appreciate it too. Well, I'm uh, sure he will. Yeah. If he likes anything with chocolate in it. Yeah. We'll take a break real quick. Um, but if you want to listen to the rest of our conversation, uh, go over to iTunes or whatever your favorite podcast player is. And then um, we're going to be chatting about preventative cardiology, your new fresh project, um, uh, and some other stuff about lifestyle medicine. It's going to be great. So how was your overnight oats? It was great. I loved it. <laughs> really good, yeah. Good, I good. Be, I will be experimenting with that at home. Good. And you can experiment yeah. because, you know, there's... Turmeric spice latte mixtures you can use. You can use ginger, cinnamon, mm. cardamom, clove. Um, just as long as you've got that sweetness balance and, and the recipes on, yeah. on the website and stuff. Yeah, um, it, it, yeah it really makes a, a difference. Thank you. No worries. Mm. Anytime. I'm excited to see some of your pictures on social media after yeah. having that one. Now yeah. you know the recipe. Yeah. So let's talk about um, preventative cardiology. Mm. And... Um, you know, I, I've personally got a lot more medics asking me where to start and how I started. So we know your personal story. We know sort of what led you to the sort of light bulb moment, the mm. realization that, you know, all these other factors that are holistic mm. certainly have a, a, a demonstrable impact, a huge mm. impact on your well-being. So where did you start? So I started, obviously, I was a practicing doctor at the time. Mm. I'd gone through this big lifestyle issue mm. um, and sort of come out the other end and reflected a lot on my own health and how I did things. And then started to look at my patients and how I treated my patients, what I told them, what messages I gave to them. And I was so shocked. I, you know, I don't think until this point in time I'd really realized how little 
attention I was paying to prevention um, are over and above, you know, all the usual medications that we give and the prescriptions that we write. Um, and I also realised that a lot of the time, when I was seeing patients in clinic, I was po popping a bandage on the problem. So they come in, their blood pressure would be high. I'd say that's, you know, it's high. Let's give you a tablet. Mm. And then I'd see them three months later and then their blood pressure would be still high. And I'd be thinking, okay, right, let's give you another tablet. And what I, what I realized was that when in cardiology, what we've done over the years is phenomenal. We've achieved so much. We've, the mortality from heart disease has dropped year on year. Um, and yet the prevalence hasn't really dropped. So the number of people with cardiovascular disease hasn't really dropped. And what I was seeing was that my patients were getting younger and they were getting sicker. And whereas, you know, they weren't dying because we've really improved not only our techniques for preventing, um, you know, cardiovascular disease with statins and those sorts of things. We've also increased the treatment options for people having heart attacks. It's Initially, we used to just pop people on aspirin yeah. and a beta yeah. blocker and watch them have their heart attack. Yeah. And then there were clot busting drugs. And now there are techniques where we take people into catheter labs and open up their, their blocked blood vessels. So these techniques have really made a big difference and stopped people from dying. But we haven't really improved the morbidity aspect. Yeah. We're excellent at treating acute disease. But what we, what we lack is really focusing on what happens when it's no longer acute, the moment it becomes chronic. Um, and so not only did I reflect on how I was treating patients in clinic, but I was looking at what I was doing on my coronary care rounds. Patients were having, you know, having just had their heart attack, having just had their stent put in, would be on the coronary care unit and in would, and I'd be prescribing the aspirin and the statin, and in would walk the voluntary service trolley. Yeah. And honestly, I, I, I would look at it and I th there's not one healthy thing on that trolley. Yeah. There's chocolate cordial crisps, yeah. you know, newspaper, which will probably cause a lot more stress as well. <laughs> but yeah. at the same time... I didn't think about the newspaper. Yeah, That's a new angle, actually. It's, yeah. It's, yeah. But I really thought there's nothing here that is health promoting. Um, and so it made me really rethink how I was practicing medicine. Um, and then I started to give a lot more advice focused on lifestyle. I started to do that in clinic. Um, that's when I came up against, uh, with your podcast. And interestingly enough, I was getting phenomenal results. So people were coming off their blood pressure tablets and it wasn't big, big changes. It was often just adding a little bit of exercise into their daily routine or changing the times that they ate. It wasn't big changes. And one woman I remember very clearly um, had atrial fibrillation and I said, what about listening to this podcast? It's a doctor called Ruby Outler. And why don't you why don't you have a why don't you have a read of his book? So she did and then came back three months later. Honestly, she was like a changed woman. She had tears in her eyes. She said, You were like an angel sent no. from above. And obviously I took all the credit. I said, Yes, obviously. Um, thank you. But That's the credit cool. was due to what you, the advice that you'd given in your book. Um, and I, at that point, really started feeling so good about what I was doing. I wasn't necessarily prescribing medication. I would when it's necessary, but I was giving a lot of lifestyle advice. And so I then realized that I love prevention. I love lifestyle, talking about lifestyle measures. Um, and I started reflecting on what I thought were the key elements of um, a good 
lifestyle preventative strategy in patients with cardiac disease and came up with the Fresh Heart Project, Fantastic. where all the letters of fresh stand for one element or pillar. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's now what I'm focusing on. Um, I still do cardiac imaging, I still see patients, but I'm really now moving towards prevention and lifestyle. Yeah, that's brilliant. And we're going to talk about the Fresh uh, program that you started in a mm. second. Um, but what I find quite interesting is that even today in conventional cardiology, for want of a better term, I can't really think of something to separate what we mean by lifestyle and um, how we treat people with just drugs, uh, mm. essentially. Um, but there are more and more investigations and more and more research uh, trials geared towards um, pharmaceutical options as a, as an uh, as a preventative cardiology in itself. Mm. So, you know, PCSK9 inhibitors, mm. better and better stru- uh, statin medications, drugs. Um, we really need to reframe what we mean by preventative cardiology, I think, in this, in this country and beyond. Because as you said, a typical patient journey is just that. You see a cardiologist or a GP, you put in some drugs, you, you let them go on their merry way for a few months, and then you come back, you realize that they're at the next step of the treatment algorithm, and we don't even get a chance to talk about that diet and lifestyle stuff because we haven't really had that in our mind. Mm. So that's something I think we need to probably reframe our, our, our vernacular around quite early. So when you think about car, uh, preventative medica- um, cardiology, um, and we'll talk about the Fresh Heart Project mm. in a second, what does that what do you think of from a pharmaceutical point of view, from an interventional point of view, and from a lifestyle point of view? Yeah, so I think that we have to take a, an approach which uses all of those because we've made so much progress with pharmaceuticals, actually. So I'm definitely not against pharmaceuticals in primary prevention. And I think that's a really mm. good point because a lot of people think of um, statins in particular mm. as the devil or, mm. you know, no one should be on a statin, which I think mm. is very... Um, it's quite a dangerous play to make because I'm not just talking about the people with familial hypercholesterolemia who have a genetic condition that renders them more likely to have higher levels of these lipoproteins in their blood. Mm. Um, it, it's They genuinely are fantastic clinical tools to use alongside all the other tools Absolutely. we have in our toolbox. And that is exactly it. It's like having a toolbox mm. and part of your toolkit is medication. Mm. Part of your toolkit is you know, intervention if necessary in certain cases. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> but not always. Yeah, we could talk about the courage trial. We could, we could talk about the courage trial. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then part of it is lifestyle. Um, and should we talk about the courage trial? Yeah, first? why don't we talk about that? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, the courage trial was very interesting actually. So, I think, was it 2007? 2007, it was quite a long time ago. And they looked at lots of patients, so two, about 2,300 patients. And they randomised them, so either two, and they, these were patients with documented coronary artery disease, and they had to have ischemic symptoms. So what we mean by that is that they, there are three main blood vessels that supply the muscle of the heart, and in those blood vessels, there are significant narrowing, which when tested are significant, okay? so. These are patients with coronary artery disease, that is significant. There are a couple of exceptions. So one is if they'd had, I think, bypass grafts, and one is if they had very, very severe, very proximal, very high up disease in the left main, which 
which is excluded. Mm-hmm. And that is something that supplies a massive territory and should be treated interventionally. Very uncommon. Mm-hmm. So the majority of patients with stable angina um, and coronary artery disease, they randomise them either to interventions. So if you, and, and you know, it makes sense. If you've got a blockage in the artery of your heart, opening up that blockage just from a, you know, from a, an academic perspective makes sense. If you open up that blockage, you're supplying more blood to that bit of the muscle and you think, you know, that's going to be beneficial. So in half of the patients, they underwent intervention to open up the blockages. In the other half, they just gave them tablets. So they just gave them medications and said, right, we're going to test this. And they followed them up. And what they found was that actually the end point of major, you know, cardiovascular events and mortality was the same. So the outcomes were the same in both arms. So it didn't matter if you, if the blood vessel was opened up, which really you'd think would help mortality, but it didn't. Mm tablets work just as well. Mm-hmm. Um, what it might have done was help with anginal symptoms a little bit, mm-hmm. but actually when um, you look at the, t- the, the tablet group, anginal symptoms were helped as well. Yeah. So really, intervention and stents in the majority of people with stable angina, and this is not a heart attack, mm-hmm. not, a, not something where you go into you know hospital acutely with, um, works just you know tablets work just as well mm-hmm. okay it does not save lives it may help symptoms and that the, we there was an orbiter trial as well very recently uh, I haven't come I don't across know if you've come across no, that so no. this was a group in london daryl francis did uh-huh. and he said well that's all very well courage is very well but people who are undergoing intervention uh-huh. um they have had a procedure so is there a placebo effect Gotcha. With that, we haven't really tested. So, so they did. They took a smaller group, but about just over 230 patients, and uh-huh. they randomised them to medication, optimal medical therapy, or stents uh-huh. in people who had a blockage in one of their blood vessels. Uh-huh. And this was very interesting. Um, they, they they actually found again. So the group that had just medication actually underwent a procedure. Mm-hmm. So they genuinely did not know if they had a stent or not because they had a procedure. They had an angiogram where we look at the arteries of the heart mm-hmm. and they had a little um, pressure wire mm-hmm. or a little wire put down that artery with the blockage. So they had had, but they didn't have the stent. So they just had a sham procedure. Right, okay. And then the other group did have the stent. Have the okay, Again, yeah. their exercise time was identical. Really? Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. And I mean, people first of all, genuinely I'm, did not know which I'm, group they were in. Yeah, I mean, the first yeah. the first visual reaction is like, how am I sticking that through ethics? First of all, like the sham procedure versus it's, the... Yeah. It's a good point, And that was really raised at a lot of <laughs> meetings. But it's a question. It's a genuine clinical question yeah. that we have. Yeah, yeah. And I can understand because if you can demonstrate in the courage, in the courage mm-hmm. trial that medication versus uh, intervention mm-hmm. in stable uh, patients, so not acute patients, stable mm-hmm. patients... Uh, have similar outcomes mm. then it stands to reason you could potentially argue well if we try sham versus the intervention then maybe we're not putting them at greater harm as mm. long as they're on medications as well i'm assuming the what what the, the question from the courage trial was that you know it helps with anginal symptoms uh-huh. and the only way in which you can test that it helps with anginal symptoms is to do a randomized control trial where they genuinely don't know if they've had a stent or mm. if they haven't had a stent mm-hmm. And 
you know, it was, there were lots of criticisms, there weren't very many patients, it wasn't followed up for a very long time, but it's very interesting finding, so watch this space. Yeah. But intervention in people who are stable generally works just as well as tablets, yeah. and it does not reduce death, it yeah. does not reduce events, and that is the message. And that's really interesting because I think back then, the because of the rationale of essentially putting something in that's going to what physically widen your vessels stands to reason that you know it's it's going to be good yeah. for you and back then it was kind of like the wild wild west right it's yeah. just like people doing stents all the time like you know you've got any kind of issues or whatever we'll just put you through a stent and 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 that's how it was but that was really revolutionary at the time yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and so when we talk about prevention, um, medications are one element of it. Um, and we do that very well. But what I'm, I realised very you know, recently was that we don't do the lifestyle very well. And Rupi, it's not about blame, which I think is a really important thing to mention. Um, because often when we talk about diet and lifestyle and exercise, particularly when patients have had a heart attack or if they're in a vulnerable position, it feels like a bit of an attack mm -hmm. and it feels like we're saying part of this may be your fault. Exactly. And that promotes a psychology where they may not be as receptive to what you're trying to say and they're in a very, very vulnerable position. And I genuinely don't think that we can blame patients because as a society, I think we are more health conscious than before. I mean, how many of us have had a gym membership that we can't go to? How many of us have said we, we're on a diet or we're being good today and just not been able to keep that up? And so I don't think it's through want of trying. I think it's actually because the environment that we're in, society that we're in, sets us up for um, bad you know, health behaviours. I mean, if you look at the blue zones where people live to 100 really well, they didn't think, oh, I've got to be good today. I've got to go to a gym. Yeah. It's just that their environment was set up for health and longevity. And why is it now that at every street corner there's a fast food restaurant or particularly in deprived areas there are fast food restaurants? Why is it that, you know, you go to a hospital canteen and to get a you know bowl of chips is cheaper than a salad or even a banana sometimes and why is it that you know when patients are on the coronary care unit they're having chocolate yeah. and cordial and crisps wheeled to you it's just that society has evolved for convenience um we're always on the go and we're sleep deprived absolutely yeah. I, I mean i feel very strongly about this because i think the default option should always be the one that is in line with our evolutionary design and mm. how we are meant to function um, and currently it's one get more towards consumerism mm. and um, convenience absolutely. which unfortunately don't go hand in hand mm. with health and the more we see the fact that morbidity is uh, increasing mm. and we have greater prevalence of cardiovascular problems in particular mm. amongst a whole bunch of other things that we can talk about um, it's gonna at some point come to a head where we're gonna have to actually design new societies and new cities with this in mind which I'm actually very look, much looking forward to yes. because I think we can make these um, yes. changes quite effectively yes. if we plan with the right mindset but that, that in itself is going to uh, be quite controversial, I guess. And um, it, it, it's going to take a, a new way of, of thinking about how we work with industry in mm. particular. Industry has a bad name, mm. uh, but I think there may be some genuine attempts from moral 
upstanding people within industry um, that could uh, could change the way uh, health is intertwined with, mm. with design and, and then how we sell products essentially. Mm. Um, I know that you've taken a lot of inspiration from some cardiologists in particular from America who have done um, sort of lifestyle medicine projects, um, who have gone through the same sort of training as you. Um, what sort of teachings have you sort of gleaned from them and the research that came out of that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think there are some very inspirational cardiologists in the mm. States. Um, in particular, a couple that I've learned a lot from, Esselstein. Mm. Um, I don't think he was a cardiologist, was he a vascular surgeon? Uh, he was... He, he I don't know, actually. I, I, thought, I, I assumed he was a cardiologist because I remember coming across that paper that everyone's uh, talked about in the past about... Yeah. Um, improvements in uh, luminal narrowing yeah. um, for, for people with established cardiovascular yeah. disease. Yeah. And he sort of revolutionised, he paved the way really, I think. Yeah. And what he showed was that through just the power of diet, mm. you can reverse coronary mm. artery lesions, established coronary artery lesions can be reversed mm. through the power of diet. Yeah. And he used um, a very plant-based, vegan, very low-fat approach. And his patients complied, yeah. His, you know, so... Um, he saw phenomenal results. And then there are others. There's Joel Furman, mm -hmm. who has also used, he uses a very plant-based approach as well. Um, and he calls it, I think, nutritarian, where, yeah. you know, you look at the nutrient content. I think there's something really to be said for that, because if you look at the nutrient, if you maximize on nutrients rather than empty calories, then automatically your diet improves. Yeah. And he's seen phenomenal results. Mm. And then there's also a, um, a cardiologist called Dean Ornish, mm who uses, you know, I mean, he's seen phenomenal results. He's taken people who have established coronary disease and reversed it. Mm. He's taken people on heart transplant lists and reversed it. Mm. And what he's done is he's used a program of lots of things. So it's not just diet, although that's an integral part. He's, he uses lots of coaching. Um, he uses yoga, meditation. He uses a bit of exercise as well. But then one of the key things that he gives his, 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 his patients is love and belonging mm. and a safe space in which they can explore the lifestyle changes that they can sustainably make and, you know, to promote their health. Um, and he's so he's been quite an inspiration I have to say yeah, and the way absolutely. he goes about it yeah and I think you know one thing that's important to mention is that a lot of the studies have been uh, alongside conventional therapy right so mm. some of the studies that showed reversal of cardiovascular disease of which there are plenty even though the studies might promote the fact that it was uh, a dietary intervention it was alongside statin therapy yeah. and uh, anti-blood pressure medication yeah. the important thing to know and there's something that I feel quite strongly about is I've put plenty of people on statin medications yeah. I've put plenty of people yeah. on blood pressure and, and cardiova cardiovascular preventative medications yeah. I have not seen reversal yeah. <laughs> if anything yeah. it's the other way around yeah. so there is something magical <laughs> for uh, again like something really really to be uh, taken advantage of and 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 um given more attention about the yeah. the interplay of diet and 
clinical inter- uh, clinical medications and you know all the other interventions that we have as well there is something quite special about yeah. that relationship and that's yeah. not something to be scoffed at yeah and Rupi you made a very important point in that it is done in conjunction with medical therapy so if anyone is thinking oh I'm going to do this it's brilliant please do and explore it for yourself and do what works for you however do it in conjunction with your doctor so if you are on statins if you are on medication there is a reason you are um, and do it in conjunction with um, and that's a much safer way to do it with your GP or your cardiologist or or your medical practitioner yeah even myself like mm. you know I I didn't shun medical therapy you mm. know I still had my lecture physiology mm. studies I still had my cardiac MRI mm. that incidentally found the gallstone okay. uh, yeah yeah which I've had I've, I mean I've ultrasound myself plenty of times because okay. I yeah and I don't have a gallstone anymore <laughs> yeah yeah which is quite odd um, but uh, yeah no I had a whole bunch of that and I, it was with the blessing of my cardiologist because they knew yes. that I could still be on my antiarrhythmic medication yes. or beta blockers whenever I needed them yeah. that I could try lifestyle measures you know yeah. if this was something that was significantly worried about then I probably wouldn't have gone down that way because yeah. at that point I was a very conventionally minded medic and you know the thought of lifestyle which was introduced by my mother yes. um, mm-hmm. which is so foreign to me I was like I just thought my mum was off a rocker oh. like, <laughs> and now it's kind of like I told you so yes. uh, it comes with its own issues but um, but yeah yeah no I think it's a really important point as well and you yeah. know that's why I love the fact that you are a consultant cardiologist and you're a big advocate for this and mm. I see the work that you're doing with the the Fresh project mm. as going to be revolutionary in this country because that sorry there's one so. thing I do want to mention about Dean Ornish because I'm a massive fan mm. um, is that it's uh, currently covered by American medical insurers yes. right his program yes. and yes. that I think speaks wonders because. Yeah. If you can convince a profit-maximizing organization that your program alongside conventional therapy is beneficial and there is data to support that, it's nothing to be scoffed at. It's, yeah. That's a huge, huge uh, success for, yeah. for Dean and for lifestyle medicine. Oh, life. yeah. And I think it took him a long time, didn't it? Mm. But it makes sense. Prevention is cost-saving. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk about Fresh. Yes. <laughs> I've, been, I've been dying to talk about Fresh the whole time. So tell us what Fresh yeah. is, how you came up with it, yeah. and, and what it stands for, and how you're yeah. going to put it into practice. Yeah. So um, the Fresh Heart Project came about because I wanted to simplify um, the lifestyle measures that I think are additional um, to whatever conventional therapy you're on, just to maximise um, primary prevention. Mm-hmm. Um, and secondary prevention and the prevention uh, and and it's not just about heart disease it is really about getting the most out of life and living your best life because if you if you if you live by all these pillars and take small steps then you will feel better and that's the key if you feel better everything else tends to fall into place mm-hmm. Um, and I came up with FRESH because, yes, it is a nice, punchy acronym, but it really does incorporate all, I, all the things that I believe um, in, um, lead to a healthy lifestyle. So the F stands for food, the R stands for relaxation and stress management, and the E stands for exercise, the S stands for sleep, and then the H stands for happiness. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Very important part. I very important. Yeah, very yeah. important, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And if by addressing all these aspects not all at once in small steps Mm -hmm. you can make um 
real headway in feeling better. And once you start to feel better, you can start to do a little more and then a little more. And then very slowly you'll realize that, that things are falling into place, symptoms are disappearing, blood pressure is getting better. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a real motivation to carry on. So the way I want um, people to take the Fresh Heart Project is um, to take little bits, try it and use it as um, a kind of resource for figuring out what's right for them. Yeah. So I really want it to be a an educational experience. B, I want to I want it to be a very personal experience. Mm -hmm. So I'm running day programs at the moment mm -hmm. and talking about all these different aspects. And you know, Rupi, it's been amazing. I've had such really overwhelming response to what I'm talking about. Um, you know, I've, I've, I've had a group of teachers, I've had a group of, you know, retired um, individuals, I've had, I've had lots of different groups, it doesn't matter what age, yeah. there are things that I talk about that resonate with everyone, so it doesn't matter what age. And I think what I now want to do going forward is, um, which I am going to do hopefully, starting in September as pilot, um, more of a coaching program where mm. we take people and coach them through a sort of six-week program with ten-week, a ten-week sort of intervention arm where we 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 will see them for six weeks, um, very intensively. Uh -huh. For the next four weeks, we won't see them as intensively, but we'll still touch base, and then we can still touch base for a further few months after that, just to coach them through different lifestyle changes because behaviour is difficult to change. Huge, hugely difficult, and yeah. I, I will say um, all the details for that will be on the podcast uh, show notes. So. Make sure you go to thedoctorskitchen.com and then check out this episode mm. and all the links to that will be there. So if you do want to go onto this program, um, it will be there for you. But what I, what I find um, uh, quite interesting is that there's so many different factors you need to try mm. and, and put in, put together. How do you even go about trying to address which one is the most appropriate first mover um, uh, to, for the patient in front of you? Because I have to do that in an eight minute consultation. So it's very different. I sort of like have to rely on my sort of clinical skills, acumen, um, getting a rapport with the patient and then diving into, okay, what is the one thing, what is the best next step for this person in mm. front of me? Rather than putting my own internal biases, which is mm. clearly food, mm. but uh, you know, it might be for that person in front of them, relaxation, it mm. might be sleep, it might mm. be, you know, what's the easiest and the most uh, uh, impactful factor. Mm. So how do you go about that mm. in your program? So I will go through them all mm -hmm. and people know. Okay. People just know what's missing. Mm -hmm. People then can reflect on themselves, re reflect on their lives, reflect on what's missing, yeah. reflect on what is not, the most what important is? for them. So what, what is it? Yeah. <laughs> it's sleep. It's sleep. The, as you were saying, I was like, yeah, I got that, got that. Yeah, sleep is the big, yeah. it's always the, yeah, yeah. Yeah, mine as well. <laughs> yeah. yeah, sleep is difficult. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and it's the first to go. Whenever I'm stressed, whenever I'm anxious, I don't sleep very well. You used to be a sleep researcher. I did, I did. I used to, um, so I, my PhD um, looked at patients with obstructive sleep apnea uh -huh. and the physiology of blood flow within the heart. And I spent a long time doing sleep studies and seeing patients with obstructive sleep apnea, mm. seeing normal controls and do you want to just Very explain detailed. what obstructive sleep apnea is? For yes, so obstructive sleep apnea is a condition where um, when you go to sleep at night, um, your airway ma maintains patency, it's open, okay? Um, 
when you go to sleep, the muscles of your body relax. And in a condition called obstructive sleep apnea, the muscles of the airway also relax as well. So you can actually get an obstruction to air going in and out of the lungs, okay? So what happens is that you, uh, the patients with obstructive sleep apnea fall asleep, they, they start getting more relaxed, the muscles relax, their airway collapses, um, and the, they get changes in their bloodstream. So the oxygen goes down, the carbon dioxide goes up, but they don't really wake up. Their brain registers that this is happening, so, that, so they then have a big kind of snort where they kind of open their airway and they have a little wakening. But again, it's a little wakening, they don't wake up and they go back into sleep. And then they obstruct again and they have a little wakening. So what happens is that they're having these little wakenings throughout the night and they don't get to deep sleep. So they are missing out on this massive proportion of restorative deep sleep. Plus they're having these obstructive episodes or apneas, which is changing their physiology and causing all sorts of issues, not only cardiac, but you know, um, metabolic. Yeah. Um, and they have an increased risk of cardiovascular disease, in particular hypertension. Mm -hmm. And actually, coming back to atrial fibrillation, mm -hmm. which is what you had, mm -hmm. which um, I don't know if all listeners are aware of what atrial fibrillation is. It's a yes. condition where um, the top of your heart, essentially the top of your heart beats, the bottom of the heart fo follows. But in atrial fibrillation, what happens is the top of the heart wobbles and then the bottom of the heart follows but it, it doesn't have a clear signal. So it follows quite erratically and quite irregularly. And sometimes that can be fast, sometimes that can be slow. Sometimes people don't really realize it, but yeah. often it's very symptomatic, especially if it's fast. Mm -hmm. um, and patients with obstructive sleep apnea have a higher risk of developing atrial fibrillation. Mm -hmm. Interesting. And I think like, you know, there's so many issues with poor sleep that extend mm. beyond cardiovascular, but just to think about cardiovascular, and I'm so glad it's obviously part of your lifestyle um, mm. pillar because it's, it's just such a huge part, you know, increases uh, or disruption, I should say, to your satiety hormones. So mm. ghrelin and leptin, when that goes out, but you're more likely to uh, uh, crave the salty sugar foods. You have a disruption to your roaming cytokine levels, so your inflammatory markers are elevated. Yeah you have an increased risk of um, stiffening of your arteries themselves and, and numinal lowering that, like, as part of the atherosclerotic picture. Um, blood pressure, like you said, catecholamines, yeah. so yeah. the actual hormones yeah. that drive your, your blood pressure up. Yeah. Um, and cortisol, I think, which is A, related to stress, which if you're gonna have poor sleep, that's gonna be an issue anyway because you're gonna be ratty the next mm. day and everyone's had that. But if you had that persistently over a long period of time, mm. You know, it, it, it's one of these really interesting hormones called so because it's anabolic to fat cells. So it's, mm. It increases your fat cells. It's also catabolic, so reducing to your muscle cells. You mm. get this like, it's a really bad picture when you have that in excess. Cortisol is one of the most important hormones. It's not something that we need to get rid of, um, but it's that balance that's yeah. completely out of whack um, with, with poor sleep. And that's why you just see this like fantastic interplay of all these different things. And using a pharmaceutical model, 
in my head, you might be like, oh, okay, so cortisol's bad, so let's get a drug for that. And, uh, you know, blood pressure's bad, so we'll get a blood pressure medication. And, you know, uh, sleep's, sleep's an issue, so we'll give them a, a sedative to mm. increase the... Do you know, that's a, a very sort of naive, very mm. reductionist way of doing it. Whereas if you can just try and improve their lifestyle, mm. you're naturally going to be improving all these oh, different yeah. things at the same time. Yeah. So, you know, th this whole notion of lifestyle as medicine, it's true. It's literally yeah. medicine is the most truest form. Yeah, yeah. And you've hit on so many important things with sleep. I mean, I was looking at patients with obstructive sleep apnea who have other risks. Mm. So they are... Um, generally a little bit more overweight, so that comes with its own risks. You know, some of them are, um, there's a higher prevalence of diabetes, with, which obviously has more risks. Um, but if you look at, uh, look at just simple sleep deprivation, so if you don't have any sleep disorder, if you, if you sleep for less than six hours of a night, then you are also at increased risk. Mm -hmm. And it's through all the mechanisms that you talked about. So the um, sympathetic nervous system predominates. And when we talk about that, we talk about stress and you know that's when we typically talk about it. Our sympathetic nervous system is evolved so that we can deal with an acute stressor. So, you know, we can run away from that saber-toothed tiger. We can, we, it's a fight or flight response and our blood pressure goes up, our heart rate goes up, um, and you know our levels of adrenaline go up. And if you aren't getting enough sleep, then you have that sympathetic nervous system predominance. Mm -hmm. And nowadays, lots of people are wearing um, uh, monitors and rings and they can measure things, a thing called heart rate variability. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we find that actually, if you are relaxed and you don't have, and you're not stressed and your sympathetic nervous system is is on is, is not on overdrive then you have a variability in the in your heart in your heart the the time interval between your heartbeats mm -hmm. so if you take a breath in your heart rate tends to speed and if you take a breath out your heart rate tends to slow and that is normal and that is good but if you have um lots of adrenaline circulating lots of sympathetic nervous system activity then that goes and you mm -hmm. find that in a lower heart rate variability um so you do have a sympathetic so which is kind of uh um unintuitive right because yeah. i'm obsessed with hrv i, yeah, I think I, mean, I, I yeah so i i have a an aura ring yeah. um that I, not an advert, by the way. I just I, I genuinely like this as a tracker yeah. because I genuinely don't like I don't wear a watch, I don't wear yeah. anything, but I, I'm fascinated with the quality of my sleep. So yeah. um, when I first came across HIV, I remember thinking, oh, okay, so like you know, surely the shorter the HIV, yeah. the smaller, the less stress. No, it's the yeah. other way around because yeah. you want interbe variability for uh, to, uh, which is actually a marker of you know. Um, uh, improved resilience and Absolutely. less stress. So, Absolutely. Yeah. So yeah, the sympathetic nervous system is on overdrive. You mentioned hormones, mm. um, in particular leptin and ghrelin. Mm. So if you your your hormones, essentially, um, if you have a higher level of leptin, you feel fuller. Okay, it's a very very basic way of looking at yeah, it. Yeah. Um, but your level of, of leptin is altered if you're sleep deprived mm -hmm. and you don't feel full, you feel, and, and that's, that makes sense because if you wake up in the morning and you're tired and you're knackered, then you want, you crave that, um, you crave food and you don't crave a bit of broccoli or some kale. What yeah. you crave is like that simple carb yeah. hit that's gonna yeah. get your blood sugar up and get your energy levels going. So you crave that donut, you crave mm -hmm. that muffin. Mm -hmm. And so that's another way in which you can just, if you're not, if you're not getting enough sleep, um, and you know you're perfectly healthy and normal, you can then lead, it leads to adverse behaviors. Mm -hmm. um, and then your insulin 
like you know you're, you become insulin resistant and insulin is obviously the hormone that mops up glucose and if you're resistant to this your blood sugar level can go up and then you can have a risk of type 2 diabetes and all of this all of this as you mentioned creates inflammation in the body yeah. um, and inflammation is the hallmark of so many diseases. It's the hallmark of a lot of cardiovascular disease. It's the hallmark of what I see a lot. It's a hallmark of, you know, many, many um, conditions that are not cardiac, that are inflammatory or autoimmune. Mm. So it, it getting enough sleep is very important. And our modern life doesn't set us up for that. Yeah. You know, we're always on the go. We're always, we're always um, there's something to do, isn't yeah, there? Absolutely. That, that can compromise sleep. Yeah, um, and that's, that's you snooze, why, uh, you lose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think it's almost like a societal thing yeah. as well. It's a cultural thing. Like you know, if you yeah. are sleeping or you're taking rest, then clearly you're not working yeah. hard enough. Yeah. Um, but it's, I think it's a, a super important topic, which is why I dedicated a whole chapter to it in my in my book, Eat to Be Illness, where you know, eating for inflammation is a is a very important uh, concept to understand because. It's not inflammation per se, it's the excess of inflammation yes. because inflammation by virtue of us sitting here and, yes. and you know, enjoying the fact that uh, we're in the middle of a busy city, you yeah. know, it's one of the most protective and most beneficial mechanisms that we have yeah. to uh, moderate external and internal stressors, yeah. be that. Uh, pathogenic, so bacteria and viruses and all the rest of it, be it psychological, Absolutely. be it from things like sun rays yeah. and radiation and all that yeah. kind of stuff. But the excess, which is something, like you said, yeah. as a hallmark yeah. of a whole host of other diseases yeah. beyond cardiovascular, um, it, it's pretty incredible. And the best, in, well, some of the best tools that we have against excess inflammation, one of which is sleep, another mm. which is food, another mm. which is exercise. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, uh, it's pretty amazing stuff. Yeah, and stress as well. I don't think we talk about it enough and in I'm the cardiology what, yeah, world. Yeah. And so that's why I really wanted relaxation and stress reduction to be really a core mm. part of my program because I am amazed with how many people come in with heart attacks. Now that I'm asking my patients on the ward, I might be a bit biased and I might be getting more of a story. Yeah, yeah. But the number of people that come in that say, I was fine, I was I then had this period of stress and now I'm here and yeah. I'm on a coronary care unit is yeah. phenomenal. Yeah. I can't, I'll never forget a morning I went into the coronary care unit. It was a Sunday morning and I looked around at the mail bay and I thought, gosh, they're quite, they're quite quite young today yeah. and I talked to them and they didn't really have many risk factors but the key thing that they spoke about was having this period of stress mm. that then led to this central crushing chest yeah. pain that brought them in mm. um, and it, it it's so important now mm. for us as a society really to think about how we can how we can tackle this because we don't stop yeah. we don't yeah. you know we, we keep we're on the go the whole time yeah. we don't really incorporate relaxation into our into our day Jobs are stressful, home life stressful. There's, there's always something, um, and it's really important to start the conversation. Definitely, and there's two things I want to pick up on there. Um, the stress element, I think, is super fascinating because I think we all know, as intuitively as medics, mm. that stress has an impact on cardiovascular mm. disease, right? Mm. But I, I don't remember at medical school mm. really being taught that or that being given that mm. much attention, even though mm. anecdotally from patient stories, it's clear like these guys are stressed yeah. or these women are stressed and then they're having these cardiovascular yeah. diseases. And the second thing is this sort of um, idea that uh, cardiovascular disease is, is mainly a male problem, but yes. it's actually a huge yes. issue for the female population, particularly postmenopausal as yeah. well. Um, so I don't know if that's something that you've seen reflective in your practice. Or... Yeah, so women are 
I don't remember the exact figures, but I think coronary heart disease affects more women than breast cancer. Mm. Yes, absolutely. And I think like five or six yeah. times. Yeah. And I think it's not really recognised. And there's um because we don't think about it, we we think classically when you're having a heart attack of that may you know male mid to middle age or a bit older that comes in with central crushing chest pain sweaty and that's still our idea of of a heart attack mm. and as women we do tend to have slightly different symptoms sometimes we might have a shooting pain we might not be on the left side it might be a funny shoulder ache and it is difficult to um sometimes figure out but we do need to have a, a degree of um, suspicion. And there was a group actually in Leeds that studied this. Mm-hmm. Um, and they found that, yes, if you are female and you come into hospital, then you're much less likely to be diagnosed straight away with a heart attack. Ah, and that's both for NSTEMIs and STEMIs. And the important thing here is that time is myocardium. Uh-huh. And by that, that's, that's what we live by as cardiologists. Yeah. The yeah. earlier you can get your blood vessel opened, mm-hmm. the better it is for that heart muscle that that, that that blood vessel supplies mm-hmm. um, and the higher chance that that will make a good recovery mm-hmm. so it is important that we do start to have a higher index of suspicion for women coming in with chest pain absolutely i wanted to quickly talk about food now yes. i remember we chatted a bit about like your personal sort of um uh your personal sway towards food but you're really open about yes. like food and, and how it's really about the patient in front of you yes. rather than sort of an agenda towards a, a particular way of eating. Absolutely. Do, do you mind talking a bit more about that and how that integrates with your FRESH programme? Of course, of course. I I believe that it's so important to meet patients where they're at. I think food is so important, which is why the work you're doing is brilliant and it's really oh. educational and I, you know, I'm a huge supporter of it. Um, but I think at the end of the day, for a a dietary change to be sustainable, it has to align with patient values. If you are a meat eater, then, you know, we need to work with that. If you're a vegan, that's fine. It's all totally acceptable in my eyes. I think what we need to be focusing on are the core tenants. And that is, you know, to optimize the nutrient content of your food, you know, optimize if you're, if, if what you're eating is nutritionally dense, then you're onto a winner. If what you're eating is a whole food, if you're eating loads of plants, if you're eating loads of fresh fruit, fre- fresh veg, if you're eating the rainbow, mm. as one of your podcasts was all <laughs> yeah. about, and getting all those phytochemicals, all those nutrients in, um, then already you're creating, and you know you're, you're optimizing your nutrition and helping to dampen down that inflammation inside your body. Um, I think if you want to eat meat, then if it's from a good source, if it's, you know, pasture raised, grass fed, if it's occasional, then there's, you know, I'm, I'm, I think that's, that's wonderful. Keep going. Mm. Just also optimize the amount of plants you eat. Also optimize your fiber. Mm. Fiber is something that we don't talk about that often. And something in our diet, certainly our Western diets, we don't, we don't have a lot of, but it yeah, has I think the, the, the conversation is always polarized towards protein, I find. Mm. Like, you know, everything's got protein in our water's got protein mm. in our. It's just like, no, actually, you know what, guys, we need to really focus on the variety of fiber. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that's quite misunderstood um, by the general public as well about how fiber isn't just one macronutrient or mm. one, one part of um, uh, what, we, what we're eating. It's actually 
hundreds of different types yeah. of fibers that you find yeah. by eating a largely predominantly plant-focused yeah. diet. Absolutely. Yeah. And we know what's bad. We know that, you know, your processed foods high in sugar are bad. We know that, you know, if you look at a packet and it's got, you know, it's A, illegible, and B, it's got... 10 different ingredients and it's going to have to, it's going to have undergone a high degree of processing yeah. which naturally alters that food which becomes bad for us we yeah. know that trans fats yeah. are bad so we do know what's bad for us sugar sweetened beverages mm -hmm. we know what's bad mm -hmm. and so i think focusing on trying to eliminate that yeah. and at the same time optimizing your nutrients is key mm. um and or i i I also am very well aware of the difficulties in nutritional research mm. because a lot of data is observational mm. and it's so hard if you're just looking at populations to say for definite mm. that you know this particular diet causes that because you can't yeah it's all associations mm -hmm. um, and there's lots of power in big observational studies um, but you still can't 100% um, say that that diet causes that. Yeah. And so for that reason, I'm very broad with my approach to food. Yeah. And I would say, eliminate all the bad stuff, concentrate on nutrient content, yeah. whole foods, plants, um, fiber, yeah. get your omega-3s in, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. however that may be. Yeah. <laughs> and focus on that. And the other reason I say that is that we don't know a lot about our gut microbiome. Yeah. We don't know how we handle foods yeah we're learning it's the tip of the iceberg exactly like this whole picture of what a cardiometabolic uh gut microbiota mm. looks like you know it's very up in the air at the mm. moment so it's quite hard to determine but mm. you know i feel like we could be talking about the different sort of uh letters of fresh the rest yeah. of them for the whole day yeah, but um you know i i really commend your sort of pragmatism when it comes to not only nutrition but also know stress and, and exercise and all the other features um i can't wait to hear about the the sort of stories that are going to be coming out of and you're taking on patients at the moment is that right through the yes, fresh program i am yeah. i am taking on patients so please yeah. do get in touch sure. i'm on twitter and instagram on at fresh heart doc i'm sure yeah. we feel do get in touch um can i talk about happiness Please, yeah, 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 please do, yeah. It's one of the things that people often go, happiness, why is a cardiologist talking about happiness? Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> and I really did um and ah about including it uh -huh. in my fresh, but I think actually now it's probably one of the most important yeah. because not to trivialize um, mental illness, I think if, if you really and I don't want to do that by putting H happiness mm. in, in there. Mm. Um, because I strongly believe that if you are undergoing a period of stress, if, you're, if you do feel that you are depressed or anxious, then seeking help is so important. Yeah. And what I say under happiness mm. may come across as a little bit um, uh, patronizing, belittling, yeah, and I yeah, don't want that yeah, to feel, yeah. I don't want to feel. Of course. But it is true that if you are more optimistic and more happier, then you have better outcomes. Yeah. So again, why is a cardiologist talking about it? Well, there are studies to show you that if you are, there's one study in particular that looked at, um, I think it was tens and thousands of older women mm -hmm. and it followed them over eight years mm -hmm. and it divided them into uh, quartiles or it divided them into four with how, according to how happy they were. Mm -hmm. 
uh, or how optimistic they were. And they found that the group that was the most optimistic had a 38% lower risk of heart attacks and a 39% lower risk of stroke. Wow. Yes. <laughs> I know. Wow. Okay. And, and I do believe that, you know, happiness, um, optimism is becoming one of those things that we do need to address. Yeah. Um, there's, a, there's a wonderful study by Framingham as uh-huh. well. Yeah. So the Framingham Risk, risk um, Analysis Cohort is wonderful. It's given us so much information. Absolutely. So for people who don't know, Framingham is a town in Massachusetts and they've followed people up for years and years and years. I think the study started in the 1940s and they've got hundreds of papers and they've, they've given us so much data, especially in the cardiovascular world, as to what does confer an increased risk of cardiovascular disease. And the data keeps coming in and it's ongoing, so it's a great resource. But they published a study in 2008 looking at happiness and they followed people up over 20 years. Uh And what they found was that happiness spreads. Uh And that sounds really funny, but (laughs) they they proved it. So they, they, they mapped happiness. And if you're happy, then you have this sort of hub and spoke almost of people around you that are happy Uh Um, and if your friend becomes happy then you're more likely to be happy as well Uh and that effect um, spans three degrees of separation Uh so you know if you are happy people around you become happy if your friendship group or if the people around you are positive, mm-hmm. then that is also associated with your own positivity, mm-hmm. which then feeds into the whole tenant that if you're optimistic, if you're happy, then you have a lower risk of cardiovascular disease. Yeah. Um, and I just think it's so important to talk about uh, barriers to it. Yes, absolutely. Because yeah. then we can talk about stresses, we can talk, and then everything else sort of falls into place. So, and I'm so glad you brought that up because I think not to trivialize it and you can't just sit in front of a patient like you need to be happy exactly that's so patronizing isn't it i don't care whether you know you come from a family where you've been emotionally abused or you're living on the breadline and you're struggling to figure out where you're going to be sleeping in the next Mm. couple of weeks you know but there are mechanisms that can improve our resilience to the modern day stresses psychological stresses whether that be through meditation, whether it be through breathing, whether yeah. it be through, you know, reframing your mindset on a day-to-day basis to mm. think about things, whether it's performing a gratitude exercise. I mean, it was one of the things exactly. that I found, like, you know, it, it put a positive spin on would have otherwise been a stressy day. Not neg- um, listening to negative news in the morning. Exactly. Do three minutes oh of God. negative news in the morning yeah. makes you more likely to have a n- report a negative day. You, you know, one of the best things I did was mm. take BBC News off my... Really? home screen honestly i i used to used to be every time you open up a new tab bbc news yeah. straight away and my word if it was on now like hearing about america and all the rest of it i just wouldn't be able to deal with yeah. it because it does that it really reframes your yeah. mindset to think yeah. of something that is clearly going to be sensational on the news and there's a lot of negativity around at the moment Absolutely. but I, i'm really glad you brought that because i think it has a huge huge impact and social isolation as well mm. i mean that creates a huge degree of unhappiness. And nowadays, you know, we're neurobiologically hardwired to feed off the energy of other people. That's how we've evolved. That's how we've, you know, we've lived in tribes and we've evolved in tribes. And nowadays we're in our tiny little houses and looking at our screens and, and, and not being as interactive. And I think that's having a 
big impact on our own health yeah. and well-being. This is a bit of a segue, but I, I recently came across uh, uh, this this case study looking at a patient who had a mutation in the FAR gene, the F-A-A-H, and that mm-hmm. gene basically made her um, perceive pain much, much lower. She, so she, she, she was... Uh, yeah, I don't know if it, there's that movie where uh, you know where they cut themselves and, and they hurt themselves and they can't feel pain. Basically, that was her. That was her issue. It was a mm. genuine concern because she, you know, she'd burn herself. She wouldn't realise. Um, you know, pain is a very protective mechanism that we have. She'd lost that. But one of the other things that they found out about her was that her perception of happiness was ele- was much higher. Oh wow! So her psychological resilience was a lot higher. Mm. So now, and this kind of kind of speaks into the anecdotes we have about you know positive thinking when you go mm. and have your blood taken mm. or positive breathing when mm. you know you're going through a stressful event mm. you know that we are intertwined in so many physiological ways mm. to our psychology um it's nothing to be sneered at and i'm again another very pragmatic inclusion <laughs> in your fresh um project and i think it's going to be super thank super you. impactful thank honestly you. Thank really you. can't wait really yeah. can't wait I've got to say it again, I really do commend Dr. Zorin's pragmatic approach to lifestyle medicine and her openness to the different strategies we have to preventing ill health across our NHS healthcare system and beyond. To summarise some of the points that I think are really important, um, something that she she actually uh, brought my attention to, it's looking at the news in the morning and being aware of what impact that has on your stress levels. The connection between happiness and cardiovascular disease, I'm going to link to the um, studies that she mentioned uh, regarding the Framingham cohort on the podcast notes on thedoctorskitchen.com, so go check them out. The nutrition principles that she really stands by are very similar to the ones that I was advocate whole grains, quality fats, largely whole and lots of plant-based foods. And we also talked about how lifestyle is an adjunct to therapy. So something that we use alongside the current tools we have and to use lifestyle as a clinical tool, food as a clinical tool and everything else is really the way forward. You know, we, we could have talked a lot about decreasing central adiposity and fat cells, improving endothelial function, reducing lipoprotein atherogenicity, uh, postprandial hyperinsulemia, but really it comes down to the principles that we were talking about. If we can identify people that are at higher risk, perhaps using stratification stores like metabolic syndrome, we can truly reduce the number of heart attacks that we see coming through emergency medicine doors and something that I see all the time uh, working in emergency medicine. Please do go check out the website for Dr. Zarin. It is lifestylecardiology.com. You can find her on Instagram at freshheartdoc under the same name on Twitter. I really encourage you to go check out her website, sign up for the Fresh Project if you're appropriate as a patient, and you can find all of this information and more at thedoctorskitchen.com. Subscribe to the newsletter for weekly science-based recipes, content, and much more to help you live the healthiest, happiest life. And please give us a five-star rating if you like this podcast. It really does help spread the message. Tweet us at doctors underscore kitchen. Check out the Instagram and YouTube. And of course, don't forget to order a copy of my latest book, Eat to Be Illness. I will see you next time on the podcast.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.